buttoned that up. <laughs> I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I'm stretching. Actually, yeah. you're a veteran and psychologist. <laughs> so I'm going to try and pop some pseudoscience here, and you'll be like, that is all incorrect. Uh, and <laughs> then we're going to get schooled. That's a good place to start, but more veteran than psychologist. That instantly yeah. makes me want to go to see you as a psychologist. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the way I work, I've been working, well, even before I started with my organization in 2002, I was working with um, guys from my war, the Rhodesian Bush War, all over the world because we've never had support. We've, we had no debriefing when we left our war. We were sort of operational in the bush um, for, in my case, seven months. And then um, two weeks later, I was at university, uh, really trying to figure it all out. <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of us now in our mid-60s are, are pretty lost and have um, PTSD or anxiety and stress. And so I just started working with these guys using simple tools and modalities. And working with people over years, I rapidly shifted away from what I call the psychobabble to talking to guys and going, hey, let's let's look at pull-throughs. And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, you, you're going to clean a weapon, right? You've got to clean the working parts. And you're going to clean your, you're going to drop your weighted thing with your oil cloth down your barrel. And I go, so what happens if you don't do that? So they give it some thought. And then what we work out is you're going to go AD, you're going to have a runaway gun, or you're going to have a stoppage. So, you know, stoppage is a major depressive, you just can't function, and ADs and anger outburst all the time runaway gun is you just out of control and no one wants to be around you so then I started talking to the guys about you need to look at what your daily pull-throughs are before we even get to trauma it's like if you if your barrel is not clean there's no point operating in your territory so what you have to do is first let's stabilize well-being let's learn some pull-throughs that put you back in the driver's seat of your journey and um, let's get that moving and then once we know the pull-throughs, you know how to move from your ambush territory to your OP. Once you're in your OP, you're able to have some distance, you can sit, you can observe, you can organize. So it's all couched in military territory. Also, I mean, I think, I'm not saying that non-veterans, non-veteran psychologists can't work with veterans. But there's, there's an added component when you've walked the territory in that the people I sit with, I don't think I've ever called them clients or patients. And often we address each other as brothers. And that love, whether it's, um, you know, my war was 47, 48 years ago. And whether they're Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, whenever there's still a tribe and, and a sense of brotherhood that exists between us, that immediately is a different kind of territory that we're working in. So I suppose my veteran is on top of my psychologist or in a sense I guess what I am is I'm informed into as to modalities that work but I'm there as a human being and a man sitting with other men and occasionally with some women yeah I think that helps above everything because I mean I've gone through treatment and stuff myself and gone through um even just even just maintenance sessions uh and yeah. i got a phone uh, to put it in perspective i got a phone call today so there's a couple of processes you've got to jump through now to transition and my last day in the army on wednesday transitioned out i'm now uh mr meixner and i had dv i fucked up on my own back and didn't put some paperwork in and the guys were fo- the, this poor dude from dva is calling me up like on eggshells waiting for some fucking victim 
veteran and he's like they must get briefed in on how to talk like this guy's gonna blow up at you he's gonna be loose and they're like I was like hey dude what's up it's like oh, he didn't submit some paperwork I'm like alright what do I need to submit and he was just like oh fuck he's not gonna kill me like no mate not everyone's a, vi- a whinging victim mate and you know look as well if, if when we're trying to help veterans navigate their way through their entitlements um, the system needs to be seen to be supportive not confusing it needs to be seen to be walking with a veteran and not opposing him. So he's spending months in high levels of stress, desperately trying to gather evidence and work through a complex maze of, of regulations. You know, I, I always say that, you know, if 22 people are killing themselves a day, if all of us who walk in the territory with veterans want to know what this is about and where a large part of the responsibility is, we need to go look in a mirror. Because we... We are either part of the solution or we are part of the problem. And I think anyone working with veterans, whether it's from an administrative side um, or a counseling or a healing side, we need to look at if we want to be a part of the solution. You know, think about what is the core training in, in the military. It's the ability to continually adjust and adapt to the territory you're in. We don't just go in with one tool and use that tool in all the territories. You know, if you're working in if you're working in the bush or you're working in urban areas, they're different tools, they're different ways of operating. And so for all of us working with veterans, one size doesn't fit all. So what we need is a very critical reflection on our toolbox and how we adjust and adapt our toolbox, even if it's learning different tools and other tools, and how we're willing to adjust and adapt that, one, to the veterans' territory, and two, what we need to do is also learn to understand their language, their experiences, and the roads they've walked along now you know you don't so have do to you think it's do that a lot of what i yeah carry on do you think it's part of, of the system that has created so we've monetized injuries now do you think that's detrimental or, or has helped guys in certain aspects and have have we created a, like we've taken soldiers who are um they join the army for some self-serving like or for some like service over self moving forward their country then they get out and they've turned into some of them jump on the wrong bandwagon they get down the wrong sort of chain of thinking and then we've generated this system that just turns them into like the democrats did in in america and some of the inner city like detroit and stuff keeping them on the welfare system keep them playing as the victim and just continuing that cycle look it's a tricky one because you know when i started off um in 2002 and it was predominantly with the Vietnam boys and you know once you got TPI'd so you were totally permanently incapacitated you couldn't work now you know you're still dealing with people who are competent you know trauma defi- doesn't define what we can do trauma is something that we carry and there are ways in which it can be healed so you have the possibility of getting back into the world now you know TPI's and the gold card and everything have a, a very strong financial incentive. And I think the challenge is how we navigate between the financial side, which I think is great, you know. I mean, I always say we fought the wrong war. I mean, geez, if we'd fought our war here, you know, all us middle-aged blokes would be would be safely esconded now with, you know, nice gold cards and white cards and everything. You would be all right. But, so you got nothing from yeah. Rhode- the Rhodesian Bush War. <laughs> I know. All we got was getting out before... You know, I got out 77, but the guys who got out towards the end, they had to get out quickly because the government changed hands. 
And, when did uh, they change over? Because they were there was there was going to be a transition, wasn't there? There was a process to yeah. slowly yeah. transition, and they said, "Well, they're like, no, you're going to do. We're going to do it now because you're just trying to hold on to power." And they were like, "No, no, you don't know how to run a country. Let's transition slowly." Well, it's it's it, it was in the eighties. So what happened was. Um, I suppose, crudely speaking, we lost the war. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We we ran out of ammunition and, you know, the UK was selling us down the line and there was politics and, I mean, we were just buggered. That's the only way to put it. Um, We were boxed in and there was nowhere we were going but out of all this, uh, out of the situation. Then, so what happened was there was a transitional government to um, a bloke called Muzarewa and then following that so we went from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe Rhodesia under Musawarewa then we went from Zimbabwe Rhodesia to Zimbabwe under Mugabe who had an incredibly successful rule completely bankrupting Rhodesia or Zimbabwe um, killing and committing heinous um, heinous crimes against um, war crimes and uh, just wholesale slaughtering um, to a dust bowl And so there was a point where our special forces, so the RLI, the Rhodesian Light Infantry, the SAS and our Salu Scouts, had to rapidly get out very quickly. Um, So, yeah, no, we were out and nothing. That was it. Nothing. That's that's fairly similar. I mean, the the backstory is obviously different every war, but that is fairly similar to most countries in the world. Veteran, you join the military, you do your bit, you get out. There's no big golden parachute waiting for you. And then you come to Australia no. and it's like, if it's not a golden diamond line parachute, I'm going to fucking whinge about it. And so I guess, <laughs> yeah. surely that's got to stop eventually. Like, there is some legitimate issues that need to be addressed but with, with transitions and with, with things that happen in the veteran space. But compared to the rest of the world, veterans in Australia have it as good, if not better, than every other nation. Oh, I mean, what you guys have, you know, a lot of the guys I'm working with, you know, the majority, because they carry injuries... Um, they covered with the white cards, their entitlements. Um, it's incredible. I mean, the support at every level, you know, even through the organizations that provide counseling support, this is extraordinary. I mean, they don't have to pay. Um, the, services is ec- the service is excellent. I mean, I can only speak for open arms. I, I think they're an extraordinary organization. They've handpicked their people over the years. Um, I have huge respect for them. I've you know, I wouldn't have spent 18 years as a contractor with them um, if they weren't the extraordinary organization they were. So, you know, veterans have uh, an extraordinary level of support here. However, until we can start to figure out the complexity of the transitional territory, we, we are in trouble and they are in trouble. So it doesn't matter what you give monetary-wise, but unless, you know, it, going from the military to civilian life, it's just simply another operational zone. That's all it is. It's just got a different name. It's not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan. It's civilian world. And that's as complex um, an operation as arriving in Iraq, Afghanistan, Timor, East Timor. It's as complex. Now, I don't believe that that territory has been mapped out effectively. There are layers and layers. You know, loss of identity, loss of tribe, loss of self, loss of worth. Um, you know, people talk about moral injuries. Um, yeah, moral injury is just a name. In moral injury, there are layers. There's um, what you saw and what you did. There's moral injuries when your own organization 
shifts you out rapidly. So in a sense it's experienced as your tribe betraying you. With that comes a sense of shame and not good enough. There's another moral injury. So numbers of veterans will talk about, I don't feel I was good enough um, as a veteran. Even without the moral injury, they go, I go, why are you not good enough? I didn't kill. I didn't have an opportunity to um, go operational. I go, well, that doesn't define who you are. You know, I, 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 have, I have mates who Navy SEALs, and I've spoken to them, and these are, you know, top-tier operators. And they will say to me, you know, I don't, I don't think I saw enough. I didn't see enough as my brothers did, so I don't feel good enough. So that's another moral injury, not feeling good enough, ashamed to march in Anzac, ashamed to wear your medals because you don't feel you have the right. There's another moral injury, which is um, how do you reconcile a part of you that can easily kill and a part of you that is a good husband and a father? How do you put the two together? So you have layers and yeah, layers that's... and layers. Who was always catching up with a bloke that had a coffee the other day and his dad was, uh, his, or his uncle used to work in the K... I don't know, in a secret police in some Eastern Bloc country, and he yeah. was talking about how, where did the rules for war come from? Yeah. Uh, and and we're now, what, since, what, the 1900s, we sort of did it. The Boer War, there wasn't a whole lot in there. Um, rules, and, nah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And now they're like, no, no, you've got to fight wars like this. This is wrong, and this is right, and you can't do this, and you can do this. And then you've got to come back and, and be like, just go and play happy families with your kids and you're not allowed it's, to be it's, it, it's too quick you can't it's it's like it's like you you go into the military there's no training you've not even been taught to strip clean fire a weapon they airlift you and they stick you in afghanistan and they go go for a walk we have to prepare people and and to be able to prepare them properly we all need to sit down and start to map out this territory you know i was saying to someone the other day is until we can give them an appropriate compass and a map which works. And, and I know that when I've talked to numbers of veterans and some of the, the special force blokes, when, when I start to reframe what's happening so they don't feel that their organization has been shamed or they don't feel like they're embarrassed now to say where they come from and they feel like a 20-year career in elite force functioning is just crumpled at their feet, when I reframe it, two, three weeks, they're back on track because they have, a, they have a map which creates meaning. Now, you know, we all need to sit together and it's not just about professionals sitting with professionals. We need to be sitting with veterans who understand the territory and we need to map it out. They know the territory. They know what they go through and we need to listen more to that. And if it demands that we need to adjust everything we're doing or a large part of what we're doing, so be it. You know, if a map doesn't work, you put it back in your filing cabinet and you create another one that's more appropriate to the demands of the territory. Is that because um, I've been, I mean, I've been guilty of, of being divisive politically on pretty much every time I get, every time I get a soapbox. Um, yeah. but, Two beers and a Facebook keyboard, mate, you're in trouble. Yeah, and, and but the problem is, is... Uh, I mean, you move from a country... Nationalism used to be... A, is, is okay. Now it's a dirty word. So, like, I'm proud of Australia. I'm proud of... I'm an immigrant, whatever. And that's... Nationalism was quite a... Is now a, definitely a dirty word. Um, yeah. and, and most military guys I've ever met are the most generous, philanthropic, like, yep. caring dudes. But they get branded as one particular way. Like, oh, they're all conservative right-wing nuts. 
and they get abused for being these horrible people by the other half of society which is on the rise well you see we need to educate people that just because you have a word veteran just because you have an experience called the military um, you're not right wing you know I, I was um, <laughs> I was probably the first vegetarian that got trained and then went operational and I went uh, rat packs guys um, vegetarian rat pack and they go what <laughs> and, and it was very unusual but even today as, as a um, as, and I'm a vegan today and there's no ways I'm going to eat living animals but that's my stuff you know my boys eat meat and that's cool but how do I reconcile the part of me that is wired in a weird way which is I don't have a problem with killing but how do I reconcile that with I'm still a compassionate human being and 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 what about the judgments I mean I've had people over the years thank God not a lot you know go at us Rhodesians because we were baby killers and all sorts of stuff um, you know all of this is educating the environment around veterans so people really understand. I mean, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done between the veteran and the family, the veteran and the partner. You know, in the first book I wrote, I, I, I wrote a letter. It's, it's a letter from a veteran to the partner, and he talks about all those things that we cannot talk about to, to our families. And the idea behind that was to give a bridge and create a bridge of understanding where things could be said that a veteran finds very difficult to say. So there are bridges across the veteran and wherever they're operating in, in civilian territory that constantly we need to work at that, we need to look at that, we need to bridge it. Now until we bridge it, um, you know, I, I call civilian territory the next operational zone because it can be profoundly unfriendly, unpredictable, um, chaotic and traumatic. But it's not that the problem is with civilians. It's not. Civilians are the people that occupy that territory. It's like saying um, Iraqis are the problem or Afghanis are the problem. It's not. The problem is shared information that allows us to work together and value who we, who we are. It's like the other thing I say is, you know, I often say to veterans, you know, you kind of let go of yourself. You know, I've seen numbers of special force boys. They crank on a lot of weight. They get depressed, high levels of stress. They stop exercising. And I go, you know, hey, you've, you've left yourself behind. And they go, yeah, well, you know, how do you bring yourself back? And I go, well, would you ever leave a mate behind? They go, absolutely not. And then I tell them, so why you leave yourself behind? So what we have to do is you've got a mission. Your mission is to go back and bring those parts of yourself that you need in civilian life. Reliability, dependability, sense of other, willing to sacrifice. All those values of the warrior need to combine with the civilians so part of part of ensuring that veterans enjoy a life well lived when they leave is helping them to know how to go back and collect themselves it's a rescue mission and bring themselves back when you combine those values of the warrior and the and the civilian you have an extraordinary human being and that human being can bring a lot of learning and knowledge into the civilian world as much as you know civilian world has its own ways of operating now it's not up to us. We should not be expecting civilian world to change. It is as it is. It's like it's like looking at some complex hilly terrain and going, nah, it all needs to come down so it's flat territory to cross. Well, it's not. You're going to go up and you're going to go down and you're going to do it or you sit down and that's it. <laughs> and I tell the guys, you know, civilian territory, they're not all waiting to bow to you. 
you got to come here, you've got to fit, you've got to learn the language. Isn't it, but I mean, that is, that, this is getting like way, way broader than that. This is the problem with the world at the moment, as I see it, that everyone wants to make their own life easier instead of doing it the hard way, and that is looking internally and going, what do I need to do to fix my own shit? They look out and go, how can I make the rest of the world change so that my life is easier? And it's the same with veterans blaming DVA and blaming government. It's the same as lefties trying to cancel everything that they don't get along with. It's like, I've got all the problems are in here, but I don't want to deal with them, so I'm going to just spew shit out and make everyone else change everything else around me. It's, just, it's, it's not effective because it's never going to work. Well, what we have to do is, for those that work with veterans, whether it's veterans working with veterans, peer advisors working with veterans, counsellors, psychologists, whoever, we need to help people to reconnect within themselves with pride first. When they've done that, we need to then offer them the challenge of stepping up to take charge of their healing with all the support they get. It's like I, I was thinking the other day about post-traumatic stress disorder and all the different labels. So, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, absolutely. There's so much information on that and ways of working with it. But it, I prefer post-traumatic stress because it's not a disorder. Because you, you're taking strain from adverse situations extensively over long periods of time doesn't mean you're disordered. It means you're just a little bit worn out and your barrel's kind of dirty. Then underneath that is combat stress, um, which um, somebody shared with me the other day because I'd not thought of that. And combat stress, like I didn't have PTSD or PDS when I left the Rhodesian Bush War, but I certainly had combat stress. I mean, I was waking up 20 times a night. I had migraines and body aches and pains for months, and I was hypervigilant, and I was talking really fast, and I still faced doorways, but that's functional. <laughs> so, was it talked about? Was was PTSD, PTSD like no, they were just like just no, drink? I, I didn't even have a reflection on what was going on with me. I didn't even know that waking up thirteen times a night and you know only about five years ago I said to my mate, "How was I?" And he said, "Geez, you were talking really fast and and all my body aches and pains." I had no idea. I didn't even have an idea that I had something called combat stress. It was in my vocabulary because it was never addressed with our generation. But then there was also something else. Then I, th I thought about an, another category. Now, it's not a diagnostic category because it's in no books. But I call it PMTC, and it's Post-Military Transitioning Challenge. And the reason I label this is if you think about it, your, your compass is going around the wrong way. Your map is like you want to operate through to uh, civilian territory, but your map is like... It's like 400 years old, so you lost. So what's going to happen? You're going to get stressed and anxious because you don't know where you are. You don't know how to achieve your goals. You don't know who you are. So you get more stressed and you more get anxious. So now what are you going to do? Okay, maybe we're going to have a bit more to drink because alcohol is always a part of our culture. So now you're drinking more and that becomes excessive. So now your sleep's going down, your mood's going down. So now what you're presenting with is high stress, high anxiety, low mood, desperation, poor sleep. Looks like PTSD. PTSD. But why don't we reframe it? I'm not talking about the treatment, but why don't we reframe it as, hey mate, you're going through post-military transitional challenges. It's a challenge. Veterans love challenges. It's post-military, which is, that's cool, we've got some territory to go through. If we normalize it, now we're talking a different language. We're not pathologizing it. We're not telling them there's something wrong. We're saying, hey, let's get our compass and our map going. Let's look at 
how we get the pull-throughs there and stabilize your life and give you maps and, and tools and ways to navigate through this. So I, I don't know what I'll do with this PMTC, but I like PMTC. Specifically for the transitional stuff, it is not a way of renaming post-traumatic stress disorder because your mate got blown up next to you. That's different. But this is stuff that kicks in when you get lost because you don't have a map. So is that similar? Would that be similar coin to like adjustment disorders and and uh, yeah, yeah, or specifically to? But you know, again, adjustment disorder. Geez, I'm disordered. I'm buggered now mm. for the rest of my life because I'm disordered. Whereas 100%. I've got post-military transitioning challenges. Oh, that sounds really cool because this is a challenge, and whenever I have a challenge, the best part of me is going to kick up. It's like one of the things I use with veterans if they're willing. <laughs> it's the Wim Hof. I think you boys talk about Wim Hof. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm a, I'm a Wim Hofian, man. I, <laughs> I hit the cold water twice a day and the breathing twice a day. And I can tell you, this is the best thing. I was talking to a special force bloke and I said to him, cold showers, mate, and here's the book and here's the research. He goes, I don't like cold showers. And I said, how old are you? He goes, I'm 38. Like, I'm 67 years old. You want to be shamed by an old bloke who's still climbing into cold showers? guy did the cold showers he goes i just feel amazing yep because there's research so it's challenging you see what we need to do when we transition we need to learn a different way to be comfortable being uncomfortable without falling apart you know i, I learned that my probably my earliest learning was my way of healing was through running so you know i started my little 10ks and i did my half marathons then i did my marathons and then i moved into ultra marathons and you know, in ultra marathons, the race begins at around 68 kilometers because you are uncomfortable. You've got no resources left. So you're at 68 kilometers? Yeah. I'm uncomfortable at... 6.8 meters. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm talking about 84 kilometers uphill. Holy so, fuck that. <laughs> you see, the, the thing with this is that at 64 kilometers, there's nothing left. So what you have to do, and we know because the Navy SEALs write about it all the time in Hell Week. There's a point at which you can learn to become comfortable in extreme states of discomfort and stay coherent. Now, you know, at subtle levels, being uncomfortable is, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling navigating my territory. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really stressed. Okay, let's look at that. Let's try and find ways through breathing techniques and other techniques to kick down the back of the brain. We kick down the back of the brain. You know, you're back in your OP zone. You kick up the back of your brain. You're back in your ambush zone. So you don't have to go in the story, you just have to know tools to use to move out of your ambush zone quickly. So you're in control. So it's the same with cold water. Cold water is wonderful because when you're doing this, there's an uh-oh, because you know what it's going to be like, but the more you do it, the better you feel. Like I, for a long time, I was doing this in the taps and I was going, I don't know why I'm doing this in, in winter. Now, if I don't have my cold shower, I, I don't feel good. When I have my cold shower, I actually feel warm. I don't feel cold. So we need to help veterans in little ways, whether it's maintaining their pull-through tools. So I'll sit with the guys and we'll work out 15 minutes of pull-through tools every morning. That's it. All I'm saying is get off your ass, no matter how you feel, you do your 15 minutes of pull-through tools. It might be your box breathing. I've got some other exercises which are bilateral crossing overs on the body. Um, it might be doing some... 15 minutes of yoga, uh, an Afghani boy turned me on to yoga because I don't bend, but it's been the most amazing experience. 15 minutes I tell the guys, 
I go, if you can't do it and you cop out, that's cool. After you sit down, get up, dust off, tomorrow's another day. But if we get people back into discipline, then they become comfortable within themselves and they get back into the driver's seat of their car. So it's all around learning. It's finding strategies, tools and experiences where you don't always stay in your comfort zone. Yeah, I'm stuck on uh, I'm stuck on cold showers. I'm pretty. I mean, I'm pretty good at it. Like, uh, I think I've lasted about three seconds. I fucking can't do it. I fucking cannot do it. Oh, shit. I'll get one of the boys to go with you in the shower and they can hold you in it. Eh? No, we took him. We took him to the ice bath and he put his big toe in. That was about as good as it went. I got in. I got it. Keegan is a good Just editor. It looks mate. Like- <laughs> you went from being a digger, landshack, full track. Got to be the hardest dude in the battalion, sergeant. I'm just going to get fat and do nothing. Don't worry about cold showers. Discipline's out the window. And that is that is the... I'm not saying you got fat, mate, but hey, let's... We did, but it's all right. <laughs> we, can, we can move past <laughs> it. We've got a, we've got a psych on the line, mate. We're good. <laughs> yeah, boys, I don't chat to me later. But that is, when, you, when you're young and hungry, like, discipline's easy because you want to be the toughest dude in the room. Then you get older and you're like, I've got nothing to prove anymore. Like, yeah. cold showers? No, no, no. I'll just do the comfortable option. And that comfort is a slow death. Yeah, we've got to push through that. We've got to support people to find the things that they're willing to do. Now, I've got guys that go, I'm not touching cold water. I go, that's cool. But let's look at what you're willing to do. You tell me out of this cookbook, what 15 minutes are you willing to do here? It might be five minutes of box breathing and a bit of yoga or some stretching. What are you willing to do? What exercise are you willing to do? Hey, even if it's a walk around the block. You know, all these years later, I, I do all those tools, but I still run. Now, I can't run ultra marathons, but I'll have a 6K run on, on bush trails, and I'll run, I mean, my wife, she doesn't hear me, but I run it, if I have a chance, once a year at 41 degrees, I go for my run. <laughs> mm. But when I'm there, I remember who I am, because I'm out of my comfort zone. When I'm running on trails and it's rocky, I've got to focus. I've got to deal with stress in my body but also find ways to create a challenging terrain into something where it's a sense of mastery now every veteran can find something because if they can't find it as you said they get lost and you know the minute you go downhill and you add aging onto that you go downhill really quickly and then it's real hard to come back Mm. yeah i uh, there was some couple like that the getting comfortable being uncomfortable used to be a, a big thing in my toolbox. Uh, I didn't really understand what it was, but you saw some people who were doing some pretty hard stuff sometimes, and they didn't look like they hurt at no. all. They had good no. positive self-chat. No. Um, and I think when I used to start doing hard shit, my negative, if you could have, if you could listen to my internal dialogue, it would be toxic. Absolutely. And I'm like, but the thing is, I never quit, but I just suffered through negative self-chat. And I'm like, how do you tap into that? rewire your brain when you're fucked and you can't think of anything other than yeah. there's got to be something in it where you can rewire get comfortable being uncomfortable Mate, that well, is that is um the rewiring is going back into more achievable pieces of territory so it might be maintaining a discipline every single day it might be cutting down your beers from eight in a day to maybe three in a day it might be not eating so much and tolerating a bit of hunger it might be about having a cold shower you know, it's but starting from somewhere, you know, uh, running an ultra marathon is a long process of constantly stretching your discomfort. You know, you'll go from 20 to 30 to 40 
and you're pushing discomfort and, and as you're normalizing that you extend it it's the same with this we've got to go back to places people can achieve success for somebody it might simply be get up go check the post get up go for a walk around the block that's it do that three times a week then do it four mm. times a week then maybe walk a bit faster find a hill to walk up time yourself you know see how fast you can go you know I always tell the guys check in with the doctors first to make sure what you're doing but you up it real slow now that's what we can do with everyone is set an expectation that is within the parameters of where they at that we encourage them to remember who they are and that's why I talk about the rescue mission to go back and get who you are is that you never give up you may sit down on the side of the road but you do and I often say by the collar if it's cold and raining outside and there's nothing wrong with you physically but you don't want to go for a walk or a run you go as you do that you've achieved a victory as you achieve that victory you remember who you are and do that till the day you die you see all of this is not just about veterans all of this is about aging well maintaining your sense of personal power your self-esteem your self-confidence and your confidence in who you are it's a life lesson 100 percent, 100 as far as like what you, what you were saying before max with like how, how do you train yourself to to get discipline again like Jocko Willing, I don't want to talk about it too much because I think no, he drinks too human. much of his own. Jock, he I'm drinks too much I of it, Doc, no, the Jock Kool-Aid. Not yeah. he's, not, he's not the dude to be the mentor for everyone. But the one thing yeah. that I've pulled away from it, and that's, this is one that my housemate's big on too, is like every time he sets himself up to do something that he knows is going to be shit, yeah. you're like, all right, this is going to be shit. Good. Like this yeah. water's going to be fucking freezing. Good. Because yes. you know eventually at the end of it, like the end of it, if it was just lukewarm water, you're going to get out and be like, yeah, that was a fucking waste of time. If it's freezing cold, you're going to get out and you're going to, endorphins will be through the roof and you go, that was amazing. So like you set yourself up and go, all right, this is going to be tough. No, no, this is make it super fucked up and then go, good. And then go and do something super fucked up. And that is where you grow from it. Personal victory. You know, the SEALs, I love it because I, I use the one saying when I'm running, when it's like I'm tired and it's hot and my body's sore. And they say, pain is just weakness leaving the body. And, you know, I'm running and I'm just saying to myself, mate, pain is just weakness leaving the body. And then I go, this is just weakness. That's all it is. And at the minute I reframe it, it's like, I'm still going. Yeah, I think reframing is a good one. Hey, reframing yeah. is everything. In, in me. It's the simplest, you know, as I said to you, um, with some of the complex challenges that are facing a number of special force guys where they're finding it very difficult to feel okay about who they are and what they did and what they represented. When you reframe um, systems and territories, two to three sessions, they back in themselves, they back in their pride, they back in tribe. There's nothing complex in that. But if you don't know how to reframe it, stress, anxiety, depression, anger, resentment, simple reframe. Leave the other stuff long enough, it embeds, and now you've got a problem. So reframing is everything, isn't it? I 100%. And going into that um, that internal dialogue stuff, I think that's something that I, um, I'm probably personally going to look into uh, through my own journey and, and learning that because dudes could do it. I don't know. A um, couple of blokes that we had that, that trained and, and finished selection multiple times ago. Was, uh, like, um, yeah, they're still serving at the moment, but he would... He would come and do fucked up PT sessions and he wasn't happy unless he went and fucking destroyed himself. And I'm like, 
that is fucked up, man. You are, what is wrong? I'm like, what is fucking wrong with you, dude? Like, yeah. let's just go and do a 5K run. He's like, nah, and then we're going to do some, I was like, fuck, mate. Yeah. And he just changed his whole approach and outlook on doing shit. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, there's there's also, um, who was it now? Couldn't, yeah, it's like somebody said to me after my second ultra, because uh, like I was just, I mean, running was just the further the better. And he said to me, what are you running away from? And I went, oh, what? <laughs> and then I went home and I thought about it. And I thought, you know what, the dude's right. Because I'm trying to find my peace by pushing my body. But what happens if that's all I did? If I got to this age now, and, I, and which is I can't run 84 kilometers, what with all the stuff that's the, what I call those claymores in the back room that the running keeps that door closed? And I learned a valuable lesson, which is having a fit body is important, but just being fit and strong doesn't necessarily get rid of those claymores behind those doors. And it's not always about jumping straight into the worst experience. But it's about looking at the pull-throughs. You know, every, every memory, let's say in the military or every struggle we have, is a memory in the brain and a part of the brain. Every memory has an emotion. Trauma is where the emotion locks in like this and then it drives you. But there are ways without necessarily going into the trauma of the emotion where we can slowly separate out a bit of the memory so that 10 out of 10 stuck in trauma feels like five out of ten and we can go yeah not a nice situation but I'm a lot easier about it now we can start to look at it I always say to guys we don't need to go into your ambush zone to heal let's go back to the perimeter of your ambush zone right at the very end and you tell me where you want to start and it could be a simple thing seeing choppers coming in and bringing bodies down doesn't have to be a mate that was killed or whatever it is for that person we start there and then we process that then I go, okay, let's take another couple of steps in towards your core ambush zone. And we do it slowly. I'm not dropping guys, boom, in the middle of their ambush zone. But that's my way. It's not the only way. It's my way. So, you know, I think all these ways of, of bringing people back to themselves, setting challenges, taking charge, achieving success, reframing, um, even using helping guys through using the language of their territory to understand their journey, all of this, I believe, can help people reintegrate well and hopefully decrease the numbers of people who get to such desperate states that living is no longer an option. I mean, that's a tragedy. Eh? I think uh, there's a Western epidemic, not just a veteran. No. I mean, it seems like we've broken the whole model. If people would rather... I mean, we're super smart. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like we put man on the moon, but people would still rather kill themselves than live in a place. Like, well, I think we broke something somewhere yeah. along the lines. Well, you know, I don't know. Things have got really complex. You know, I want to go back to what you were saying. Operating in your time is a very complex procedure. I mean, there are so many rules and regulations. Everybody's carrying a webcam. That's looked at. It's analyzed. Judgments often are made by interesting people. Um, before you've got to do something, you've got to go up the line and ask for permission. It's very difficult. That in itself has huge levels of impact. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just a description. You know, my time, there were no constraints. Um, there were a lot of things done that I don't think were right. 
But all I'm saying is that working under even those levels of constraint, because the other side don't have constraints. So there's a tension in that as well for men and women. So it's just complex. There's so many complex issues that within the military people are processing and not even aware of until they come out. And then in the journey out and arriving in civilian life, there's a whole lot of other pieces of territory. It's just, it's layers, layer upon layer upon layer. I think there's a, it's a contextual thing. Like a lot of it is, uh, um, there's no divisive us and them. So it certainly feels like it. And I guess when you're older, you need to take the moral high ground, but it just gets frustrated sometimes. You just want to abuse everybody. But if you yeah. could put them in your position, they would have the same experiences and then they would come out they just haven't had those experiences. They've had protected lives doing particular things and they've made choices. Yeah. Um, you, have, you put dudes in situations where they've had to do these things uh, and it's getting to the point where you have to kick people as we progress through the, the trips. You used to have to fucking kick people to pull the trigger. Be like, fuck, they're like, dude, someone's shooting at me. Like, fucking kill him. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, well, it's fucking sweet. Because we progress through all this uh, peacekeeping, peacemaking, you get, you get, oh, you get fucking, uh, the legal would come in and they'd tell you, look, you know, if there's a guy behind a tree and he's got a gun, you can shoot him. But if he drops a gun and pulls a hand grenade, can you shoot him? Like, yes. And like, no, because he hasn't pulled the pin. But if he throws a grenade, can you shoot? You're like, guys are walking overseas and they're like, am I going to go to jail if I fucking shoot someone? And they're like, yeah, actually, now you are. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's, it's very, look, it's very, very complex. I, I think... A lot of those things have come in to ensure that operational protocols don't create casualties. It's, it's very complex, even from the level of, you know, just from my point of view, you know, if you ever watch, if you ever see photographs of Rhodesians, we're known for our short shorts and our t-shirts, that's it, and a pair of running shoes. And then everything draped over that. What was the go with the short shorts? We heard it was, so that, we heard it was to make you guys, um, uh, so you walk slower through the bush. No, we just had really good legs and we liked looking at <laughs> No, I, I don't even know why. I think a lot of it was because um, of, of ease of movement. I mean, our standard, uh, and I'm not talking about special operational protocols, and normal guys like myself, um, who were just call-up guys, we, our standard stick was four men. And so we needed to move quietly and we needed to move fast. Now, you know, if you're carrying Kevlar and all the other stuff, it's difficult to move quickly. You know, we'd be on patrols for seven to ten days and sometimes without a resupply. So I think the operational mode in those days was just really light. I mean, I had a pair of running shorts with the stripes blackened out. I had my short shorts. Um, I had a green T-shirt and um, we had a cap, which was <laughs> she was called by really not, not a really nice name, but it, 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 it had its <laughs> and, and And that was it, you know, and... I mean, my picture is a strange one because I was also, um, in my sticker four, I was the medic. And so I'm draped with, um, with drips and drugs and bags on every side. I mean, I would have loved in those days to have something compact. But it was a very different war. And, you know, war changes, the parameters change. You guys today have a different war to fight, and it's how you adjust to that. I mean... I but I mean, but, but being there... Uh, how did it get... Obviously, there was a governmental change. Who was backing... Did the world just stop back in Rhodesia and went, no, nah, it's time to... And then... When, when our Prime Minister, Ian Smith, so we were... I was born in... It was called Southern Rhodesia. So we were a British colony. 
and we stood up for God save the Queen and our currency was pounds, shillings and pence. And then the Prime Minister at the time, Ian Smith, said, you know, this being a colony of, of the UK is, we're breaking away. And so what they did was they started throwing sanctions at us. So Rhodesians being Rhodesians, what they, what they no longer got in terms of produce or manufacturing, they manufactured themselves and what they couldn't get, they stole. So they'd be going everywhere and taking everything. It was probably one of the most highly inventive nations in the world in that time. Um, and we did. We had petrol rationing. I mean, my folks had coupons, and you only had so many coupons to get petrol. I mean, there were shortages of things. Um, my dad used to, with four other old men, used to, well, old men, they were younger than me, but they felt like old men, and they'd go out with old 303s and patrol the streets. Numbers of houses had grenade screens. I mean, I, as a, as a high school student, I would wake up, we'd listen to the news every night, and every day the news began with security forces regret to announce the death in action of the following. And there was never less than five to six people, seven days a week, month after month after year, being killed every day in the bush war. So it was just the sanctions. Look, with everything that was thrown at us, we still thrived. We were known as an independent country to be the breadbasket of Africa. Um, we were extraordinary. And, you know, the farmers and the Rhodesian farmers are still in huge demand around the world. Rhodesians, um, I mean, I, I believe, you know, I'd say throw them into adversity and they will find their way. So we managed. Because that's what happened, wasn't it? The, the yeah. farms got repossessed. And now there's no fucking food and it's like a famine all through. No, there's nothing. I have, I must look at it, but I think it's a $500 billion note. (laughs) (laughs) You need two of them to buy milk. Yeah, one slice of bread. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so, you know. What was the currency sitting at during the the war or just before it? Say again? What was the currency on 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 an average... What did it rate to the US we dollar? Were, we were in the 60s, I think it was the 60s, late 60s, we were stronger than the, than the British pound. Whoa. Because we, we were so productive, mining, agriculture. I mean, we so were thriving as a, nature. We had, as a nation. We had the lowest cost of living. Um, I mean, we lived extraordinary lives. I mean, my dad was a, a shopkeeper. He sold groceries and liquor in a little store in the industrial sites my mother was um, a speech and drama teacher so you know we were middle middle class couple family and we had a house on an acre of ground and in those days three servants not smart i mean i think we still had a lot to learn about um, navigating our way with black people i think you know i'm not proud of that part of our lives but we lived the lived these extraordinary lives i mean we were an incredible country it was a dream that in a way, almost had to come to an end at some point in time. Fuck. So that went, you went from on par with the British pound yeah. to a billion dollar note within one generation. Yeah. yeah so so in, that's, my I mean, ti- in my time, I went from southern Rhodesia, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, when I got out in 77, and then it became Zimbabwe. Four shifts in my lifetime. And it went from Southern Rhodesia and Rhodesia to being a highly productive, wealthy country to a du- literally a dust bowl, an absolute dust bowl of corruption and damage. 
beyond repair for black and white alike. So, I mean, that, again, I don't, I don't want to shift gears, but that's an eye-opener for, for anyone who hasn't followed the story. Yeah. To go, like, we, we've had a couple of decades of, of Western dominance, and we go, oh, this is how it's always been, this is how it, it will always be. And yeah. you're like, no, 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 no. doesn't mean that it's always going to be like this. No. And, you know, yeah, you think about can. it, you know, we might, you know, the, the transitional challenges we go is, you know, um, how do you redefine yourself? Our challenge is, where do we belong? I don't have a country, I don't have a passport. Most of us had our passports removed from us. A, a nation we were proud of, we fought for, and numbers of people died. Where do we belong? Outside mm. of cyberspace, the answer is nowhere. Actually, that's it. Yeah, yours, uh, you don't have, there's no Anzac Day, there's no march through the city, where your gongs and... Yeah, we, we're allowed to watch, march, we've been allowed to march with you guys for many years. Oh, yeah. In, in, in Sydney City, but... No, we don't have our own stuff. We just tag on on the tail end. Um, and, you know, in fact, for many years, I, I don't really think we had anything. In fact, it was only when I arrived in Australia that I heard about this march and that Rhodesians were allowed to march in it. And, in fact, no one had any service medals because a lot of them were never given out and then disappeared into back rooms in a government that changed hands. So, yeah, really a, a lost tribe. You know, at least, at least Australians, you guys know where you belong. It's not like Vietnam where the boys were given a really hard time. Your challenge is making an effective transitioning. We had, we we also had to transition, and we made awful messes of it, many of us, because there was no map for us. We just blasted off into civilian life and and relationships and did the best we could. But, was there, um, when was the when was the point where people started realizing, like when did you start getting the two o'clock in the morning phone calls or the you know and the and you're like oh this this doesn't look like we're handling whatever the fuck this is, in in the war, yep. yeah. Look, I think towards the eighties when the government was changing and Mugabe was coming in, um, numbers of people had already left the country. Huge. There was a massive. Um, a massive um, pouring out of individuals moving to South Africa and other parts of the world. But then it became increasingly apparent to the RLI, Salus Scouts, SAS, that their time in this country was drawing to an end. And so numbers of them moved out overnight. You know, I left in 77 and I went back to university and, um, and you know, there was just no ways I was going to come back because I had a sense things were going to change. So. I didn't wait. I wasn't there until the end. Um, and you know, the the numbers of people. My cousins are there, and you know, and I have friends there. That they can't leave. You, how do you? Where's the currency to buy an air ticket? Mm. How do you start again? You know, the elderly people there who are starving, black and white. So there were people who got locked into this day and can't leave. They will stay there and they will die there in poverty and struggle. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up before. I was going to ask you how, how you got eventually got to Australia, but you, you sound like you'd got out just in time then. Yeah, I was. it was 1980, and um, my wife at the time, uh, I don't know why, we found ourselves at the Australian consulate in Cape Town. And I was a teacher in those days, so I had no money, I had no friends, and I had no family in Australia, and they didn't really need teachers. And I don't even know why, what made us think we wanted to go to Australia, but we turned up, 
the guy interviewed us, and at the end of the interview, he said, well, guys, I hope you have a good time in Australia. And I went, are you telling me we're in? He went, yep. Now, you know, if you try to do that today, it's $50,000 later if you're lucky. So we arrived with, in 1980 with a suitcase each. I had a friend's brother staying here, and we stayed with them for a couple of weeks. I had no work. Um, we I eventually got a job in the autistic school in, in Sydney, which was, you know, it was hard work because it was territory I'd never been in before. I didn't have a car. I was cycling on um, one of those early steel-framed racing bikes that had come out at that time from DY to French's Forest, you know, maybe 12 Ks in 5 degrees in Sydney weather and rain. I'd get there and sit under the, the, the hand dryer to warm up. It was just hard work, you know, my ex-wife at the time, she cried for one year solidly. We were in a little unit in DY and um, we had no friends, we had no contacts. It was just really, really hard work and after two and a half years, I'd had enough. I, I was stressed, I was exhausted. Um, I don't even think I'd processed my time in Rhodesia up until 1977. And so I, um, I resigned and we bought a Econovan, those things with two wheels, four wheels on the back and I put carpeting and steel trunks. And then for four months I traveled through all the national parks in 1982. And that's when I fell in love with Australia because I was camping with the old bushies from the depression. You know, we'd be sitting out in the bush up at, by Grafton, there's a national park called the Urugai National Park, Mini Waters. And there was an old dude there from World War II, a guy called Bob Mills. And Bob had been put in prison. He killed Germans and got out several times. He'd go for the bikies when they came in the park. He'd, at 76, he was, he was chopping wood and he'd call the wallabies in. And I'd hang out with these guys and read Banjo Patterson and pull out the guitars and play Australian music. And it was there that I found a love of the country, and that just stayed at the back of my head. And then I left because I'd had no direction here. And I was all over the place. I mean, I, I went back to South Africa, which is when I started. I was running up this thing called Table Mountain because I, my marriage had ended. I, I was, you know, like a typical veteran. I was just in a state of, where the hell am I? <laughs> and all I knew was, at least if I get up in the morning, I can run up that mountain and come back down at four o'clock in the afternoon. And at least I did something every day and I felt good doing it. And then after a couple of months of that, I ended up, I was in the UK. And then in the UK, I thought, ah, oh, my, my ex at the time wanted to go to Israel. And I go, why do you want to go to Israel? And I said, you're not even Jewish. And she goes, and I'm Jewish and I, I don't want to go to Israel. And, and she said, no, I really want to go there. I went, okay. So I said, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I'll, I was working in a mountain bike company, mountain bike company in 1984, so I bought the first mountain bike and she got a moped and I said, we're going to cycle to Israel. No map, <laughs> no, no nothing, I, I, I have no sense of direction, so I didn't have anything, it was, I have no idea, I've got a photograph, I'm in a pair of thongs, my bike piled high and off we went. I had no idea I was going to get to Israel. But we ended up so she won, yeah. So, <laughs> well, we got half. We got we got into you into England, and I had a lot of pollen and cheese at that time. So I got to the top of a hill, and I was like this. <gasps> I can't breathe. I'm tired. I'm not feeling well. And she's blonde hair, moped. I go. We're going back to England. We're getting rid of this. So we put the bikes <laughs> on the plane, 
flew to Israel and then I spent four years there working for the British Council. And that's when yeah, I got into running a lot there. Um, I had four... In between dodging Palestinian rockets and fucking... No, nah, none of that. Eh? No? <laughs> not, not where we were. Not where we were. Um, but that was where I had a, an amazing beginning, I think, because funny, I just took to it like a duck to water. I mean, I, I had friends who lived on farms and in the Dead Sea and I was doing a lot of running in the desert and um, it was just a great lifestyle, but I was all over. Then from there, uh, I was um, back in South Africa. I mean, I was all over the place, it just bouncing around three, four, five immigrations, you know, until 2002, um, my kids, when they were born, um, they became Aussie citizens by descent. So they were Australians before they were South Africans because they were born in South Africa. And then in 2002, 2000, their, their mother, so my second wife, it's going to have a casualty trail behind me. <laughs> Big one. You'd have been um, a war officer if you were staying in the army, <laughs> weren't you? The, the, war, the war never stopped after, after the Bush War, trust me. And she said, um, let's go to South Africa, let's go to Australia. Um, I said, well, we can process you through a spouse visa, which we did. And we... The kids and I walked in, and she came in under the spouse um, visa, and, you know, my journey began in 2000, and, um, yeah, it was a tough couple of years, you know, because that marriage didn't end, and, um, yeah, that was a hard one. There was a lot of, yeah, I went through dark space, hard space, had my nose against the wall with all the changes and the impacts of the marriage on my life and my kids, but then regrouped, and... Um, Probably about, I always say my life began at 60 because I met and married the most extraordinary woman that I'm married to now. And I have good close relationships with my kids. My one son's in the UK, my other son's a cop in Melbourne. Um, my other son, my son in the UK is a, a really amazing photographer, was the film. See, your son, your son in Melbourne's going to be in a fucking pickle, isn't he? He'll be, he'll be yeah. a popular dude at the moment. Yeah, I know, he's stopping all the covert breakers. Yeah, he's having fun. <laughs> Last thing I think he was telling me was running off to a boy and he had his um, he had his knee on him. So yeah, he's, he's <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Not his neck. My other son in the UK. I mean, he's an amazing photographer and he was the film bloke on South African Survivor. So you know, my boys have done incredible things. My daughter's studying performing arts in South Africa. So you know, things started to stabilize. But it was only it was only seven years ago that my life stopped becoming a war. And the advantage is when we work with the younger generation, your guys and younger, they don't have to do, you know, what guys like I did, which is just a trail of chaos, you know, of just adversity because we just somehow, we're just firing off and making one mistake after another. So how long did the, how long did the Bush War go for? So it went from the 60s to about 1984, I think. My history is not that great. So we go from that with a no country identity. I mean, you're, that's the epitome of no purpose, no identity, no. Yeah. Yeah. There must be there must be trails of mental health Huge. problems. Huge. And you know, our, our commandos. So the equivalent of you guys was our RLI, Radiation Light Infantry. Those boys. Um, were our fire force. So they were dropped into five to six contacts a day, fighting at 50 to 100 meters away, where the killing was just beyond description, beyond. 
you know, parachuting down from 500 meters, the open parachute hit the ground, smack into a contact. And, and you know, you're dealing with men today. Some of these guys are still operating in Afghanistan on contract, middle-aged blokes. Because they, they couldn't, they couldn't, they, they lost. Yeah. They're, they're guys, I've, I've talked to lots of guys over the years that have terrible trauma, terrible trauma. You know, because if you don't get the right kind of help, all you're doing is you're drinking your way through to kind of downregulate your anxiety and stress. And that's a slippery dip to hell. And, you mm. know, all the memories of, you know, Rhodesia was a, was a really dirty war. Things were done and things happened that, um, I mean, boundaries on both sides were just transgressed all the time. There was nothing moral or constrained about that war. Well, it was a war for a country and a nation's identity. One of them was going to win and one of them was going to... Yeah. One loses their identity, one... Yeah. Whoever was the victor. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment. He was actually... Um, he's an ex... He was ex-Australian SAS, my age. He's written his book. Um, he then went to Rhodesia, fought there. SAS joined there, then Salih Scouts and went to South Africa. But he talks about terrorists walking into a house and grabbing the six-month baby and bayoneting it to death. Now, you know, that's, that's the war we're talking about. We're talking about terrorists walking into African villages and cutting off body parts to make sure the village um, behaved and did what they were told to do. You know, that's the kind of war that Rhodesians were fighting. There was nothing moral about that war. And, and I think because it was such a violent one, yeah, I mean... People struggle, people suffer. Um, it's interesting, though, that I don't know the stats, but I, I don't know if there's such a high suicide rate. Now, you know, why people are kidding themselves? Well, I think wars become a lot more complex. Civilian life has become a lot more complex, and being able to transition is very difficult. And so I think the world of today, both in terms of operational kind of complexities and transitioning challenges and who am I and what is civilian life like it's it's a different game now and and I think and I think I, I don't think suicide was ever an option I know there have been some suicides but I don't think the 22 a day like that's in the USA is um, it was ever that something that existed is that because it so there's a you know there's a, there's a group of people who have fought for 20 years they've lost their country their purpose they're gritty right they've yeah so Israel's gritty. They are not going fucking... They're never going to oh, go man. anywhere. You bite Israel, they come out fighting. Yeah. Yeah. And the same would have happened with backing from an international community to keep all of a country, right? And then... Yeah. Uh, the generation is gritty. Yeah. Or has that become a thing where suicide is literally, like you said, now it's an actual option because it's so ingrained. It, it's, it's a tool in a toolbox that never was there before. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also we were fighting Israel and Rhodesia... Our war was within our territory, and um, we are we were very supported and valued by the country. You know, so we could hitchhike between towns, and strangers would pick us up and take us into their places for food. And there was a real sense of tribe. I think also, um, as as kids being brought up in Africa, and and in the beginnings of the war, we we we, we were exposed and. We had to deal with things, you know, we, we had a level of resilience um, as a nation. I think we're dealing with 
a group of young people today with very poor resilience. We see it in school. I mean, I work in a school during the day, and, and I see the struggle young people have to stay resilient and coherent within challenge. And I hear a lot of the old-timers that I work with, you know, the guys in their 50s and 60s who are still in the military, talk about how soft the new generation is, that you can't shout at someone anymore because then there's a discrimination suit, and how it's changed and how politicized the military's become at certain levels. Um, and so I think if you put all of that together with all the technology and the understanding and availability of suicide and... Yeah, I think it's understanding that people get so lost that this is a it's a doorway now that you can go through. And yeah, especially I mean, you I, know, if you're not resilient enough, yeah, you're gonna lose it. Yeah, resilience is definitely a problem for the younger generation or our generation and younger. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree. There's, 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 I mean, that's a super complex discussion. That suicide, like, yes, there was definitely suicide after World War One and Two in Australia. Yeah. Um, but it was just nowhere near as well reported. Like we've got the internet now; everybody can, everyone's got a voice, and everyone's reporting statistics. Yeah. But at the same time, like I got, I got a theory. I don't know if it's you shoot it down if it's dog shit. But like humans have evolved for hundreds of thousands of years in conflict, whether it's against animals for survival, each other, tribal, whatever it is. We've evolved to rec almost like need conflict. Uh, and we get to the point now where, as Australians, no, Australia was never really in threat. Like, bigger picture, yeah. macro scale, maybe. Yeah. Communism back in the day, yeah. um, the, the religious stuff in, in this day and age. There's a bit of a threat, but it was never really someone in Australia, right, this is a blood feud, us versus them. Yeah. That you can kind of go on fighting forever like the Israelis do, and you don't really get caught up in the what happens after, after yeah. war stuff because it never yeah. stops. Like, your, your conflict is always there, and you have a real yeah. opponent. But with, with veterans in Australia and America is the same. You go and fight a, a war on, on propaganda-based ideals or maybe some of them are real and they, you build a narrative around who your actual enemy is and that gives you the right to go and fulfill that need for conflict. You go and fight that evil person. Come back and you're whole, you're, half your country's against you and you're like, what the fuck was I just fighting for? And you don't. And now you've got no one to, to go into conflict with other than the bloke sitting next to you or the, the guy yes. on the other end of the keyboard on, on Facebook. And I mean, you even see it at a, at a smaller level. If you break it down, like all these reality TV shows, completely shifting gears. All these reality TV shows are essentially um, white, middle-aged, overly privileged women who have just got nothing to whinge about. So they fucking take pain pills and fight each other and bitch at each other because they've got this need for conflict, but nothing to really whinge about or no one to really need to fight. So you take it out on everyone else around you. I think that's, in my mind, has a part to play in it. Like we, we have this evolved need to be in conflict all the time and the world right now is so comfortable there is there is no need to be in conflict in the western world so if you are of that warrior mindset you go all right I'm, I, I now have hate for these people I'm going to take my war now is with DVA my war now is with the government and if you want to take it a step further you're like I need I, I have this need for conflict but I don't want to hurt the people around me I don't want to hurt the people I love, so I'm just yeah. going to turn the, the fight on myself. Yeah. And then you start hating yourself, and you're like, all right, I'm going to win this fight by killing the person I'm fighting against, but it just happens to be me. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also because um, when veterans arrive in civilian life, it's not like everybody's waiting for you to come. you just got to get there, and you've got to adjust and adapt, and you've got to fit. You know, in, in Israel, in, in Rhodesia, we were a warring nation. Women fought. You know, they carried weapons. Um, 
the farmers, the wife and the kids, the kids were dealing with contacts on a regular basis while their farmhouses were being attacked. So we were a warrior nation. Israel is a warrior nation. But veterans come out with the skill sets and a sense of identity. They arrive in the civilian world, and frankly, you know, the world's not, civilian world's not waiting to give you a job. You have to adjust and adapt. You've got to change your language. You've got to change how you react and how you talk to people. So it's that sense of you've lost your tribe. And I think because veterans have such a strong tribe, consciousness that the lack of tribe is incredibly painful. It's a terrible loss on top of everything else. You know, I always ask myself, how come as a psychologist, I have no... All my work is with my organization, veterans and their families. That's it. What makes me just stick to this tribe? Now, it's not just as a psychologist. It's also my sense of being or belonging and returning to that part of tribe which fits a part of who I am. I remember who I am in this place. It doesn't mean I'm there for my need with the people I sit with, but it's a sense of we all belong. We're all brothers. You know, there's a sh there's 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 a sense of shared love, and I, and I, and I and you know, this sense of love that is spoken between veterans is a very powerful thing. Now, I know that that's important for me. That sense of belonging, it's it defines a part of who I am, and it locates me in in tribe. But what is it like for veterans who don't have anywhere to go? They are completely lost. They they're in this dark place with everything else that is just slowly building up inside them. And, like, and worse than that is guys who don't feel like they belong to the tribe that they lost. Oh, and yeah, that's a harder that's one. The, that's the, worth, the sense of worth stuff yeah. you're talking about at the start. Boys, I, I'm super sorry. I have a heart out at five. Yeah. I, this is probably my favorite conversation, so I'm going to have to come back and watch it. Um, but I do have to jump off real quick. Yeah, can good. you, before you, I'll, I'll let you guys finish talking, but okay. Max, can you ask at some stage, I need to know what all these pull-through tools are. Okay. We were talking about at the start, you said you got daily pull-throughs, and I was going to hit you up to see what they were, but I've got to go. I'll, I'll hang up, Keegan, is that cool, and it stays online? Is that all, yeah. I, don't, I won't close the tab or anything? Yeah, it should be fine if you if you just oh, jump out. We'll have to do this again, mate, because like I said, this has been my favourite conversation yet. Yeah, I think we're going to have to pull this over a two-parter, mate, to be honest. <laughs> if yeah, you right, I'll, I'll, I'll see you later anyway, boys. I've got to jump. Yeah, cheers, mate. Bye. Yeah, look, yeah, I, we, think, I, think, um, I, I, I think I like what you guys are doing. And I mean, I think for me, you know, outside of my work with my organisation, everything that I've done, and a lot of it is mainly in, in, the, in, the, in the USA, you know, a lot of what I write about and, and, and trying to help, trying to use operational language to help veterans create a map and things they understand about healing, and also to try and help those working with veterans to learn. You can talk about a pull-through. You know, any psychologist, any counselor can say, mate, listen, let's talk about pull-throughs. You don't have to be in the military to know how that works and their OP and their ambush zones and, and all of that stuff. Um, and in the in the USA, it's got a lot of traction. Um, you know, I know within one of the organisations that transitions seals to um, corporate works, um, the programs director there was saying that you know a lot of what I've written is saving lives because it comes from the ground that the veteran is familiar with. So that part of my life is service, and 
that's another thing that I've, I've seen is really important for all of us as veterans and I'd say for humanity as well is that part of our life should be in service you know I I don't make money and I don't want to make money out of my stuff in the UK in the USA um, and in anything out of where I do get paid by my organization that quality of service is probably the most healing part of what I do and and I think part of what we need to look at with veterans is you know every veteran as he heals means he's gone back he's like skirmished back into his territory he's brought himself back he's done it now as a peer mentor as a bloke he can or as a woman um, you've got the capacity to hold people when they begin that journey as well you know, so yeah i think that that open arms the the the, the peer, uh, yeah. peer, support peer support program, program yeah. i think it's i think if you get the right people in that that it, if you get the right people uh you know and and i know it'd be tough for open arms as a national agency to yeah. to nail it every time but i think i think they're gonna fucking i think that's a good stepping stone and then so you know moving into psychology and psychiatry like to give back and and you see a lot of veterans go from prior to he, prior to this process a lot of them do ambulance fireys correct uh yeah, correct. more ambulance a lot a lot of dudes want to be yeah. ambulance a lot of guys service yeah. transfer to be a medic yes yes you know because there's got a service capacity so you know i, I think that the thing we identify is that there are so many pieces of territory impacting on people and we need to take time to look at this all really carefully and look at what is being called for for each of that all those pieces of territory what do we do how do we reform our tools and our presence um, how do we create maps and an effective compass it's it's a work in progress i don't think we're arriving there but i recognize that there is a real intent to get better at it i think there's a recognition that just staying with the same old tools has limitations it's not that they don't work but there's a time and a place for them you know i often say when you're cranking in your ambush zone, there's no blood flow to your OP, your frontal cortex. It's like you can't think, you can't plan, you can't reason. So at that point, having a conversation about your thinking is not going to work because you're not thinking. So first what we want to do is kick veterans back, go in the body, settle all the tension in the body. It's what we call a bottom-up approach. When that's done, we can have a conversation. So. You know, there's a brilliant book, a guy called Bessel van der Kolk. He wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And um, he says, you know, look, trauma is in the body as well. And instead of coming from the top down, like in, instead of trying to go through the front door, go through the back door in the body. Teach veterans. And that's when I, what I call the pull-throughs. And, and what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll email, I'll send on the email, um, the pull throughs. I've I got them here, and I can cut and paste them. Because you've got you've got two books. I want to put your links. You have a website and and yeah. and the stores where they can be available. Because you've got two books, haven't yeah. you? So the second book has everything, and it's a free PDF. So I didn't want to have a book that people paid for, and so that PDF they just have to go on the website and and download it. And I think, I mean, I've I've realised over the last couple of years that the transitioning territory is a lot more complex than when I wrote that book. So I contracted with um, a company in America to self-publish, but I just, I haven't got to write in the book at the moment and I'm probably in a bit of avoidance. Um, but yeah, hopefully I get there and then I can write a really, I want to create a book which is like a map 
you know it's point form it's little summaries at the back little exercises as you go along it's like a companion yeah and it's it's like a map and compass that men and women can take with them on the journey and it's just my take on things it's not the only take on things but it's mine and i'm i'm not saying it's the only one but it's the one that i use and i and i know i've had great success with veterans but there are other people using other modalities with great success as well but you know, I can only speak from the territory I walk in and, and learn tools as I go along. But yeah, so at the moment the PDF is there and they can download it. And I mean, people can contact me. Um, I do encourage veterans to go through Open Arms um, as an organization because they don't have to pay. It's free. Um, and that the the counselors you're getting are carefully vetted. And it's, it's not always that there's going to be a fit. It doesn't always mean that. That's life. It's like, you know, your first girlfriend's not going to always be the last one. So, um, but I do encourage them to go through that organization rather than go private. Um, and at least then they can begin a process. A lot of the guys know I'm around and they will ask. Is there a, um, so with that, I mean, I've done, I've been in the same predicament myself uh, yeah. when they call it. So what are the pitfalls? So we know that, you know, you need to have a good fit. And, and don't sit there if you don't gel with your um, psychologist yeah. uh, and move. But what are the pitfalls that dudes should look out for it, so they're not shopping for enabling their own bullshit? Or, or how do they know they've got someone that they, they... Yeah, I think I've actually got this thing I wrote um, for psychologists and, and this things like don't expect that the guys or the guy or the girl is automatically going to accept the tools you want don't accept that they're going to go where you want to go and don't accept that don't expect that they're going to sit where you tell them to sit things like that you have to earn the right so i had a veteran come and see me he'd been he'd seen someone before and i said to him what happened he said um i walked in the room and i sat down and the counselor said sorry that's my chair the thing was that chair was facing the doorway the counselor said uh, to him, you have to sit there. And he said, no, I need to sit here. But there was no clue why he was saying that. And so what you want to ask a counselor is, how much experience have you had working with veterans? What do you know about our territories? What do you know about the things that work? I think I tell veterans to be discriminating. You know, if a modality is thrown at you and you are profoundly uncomfortable, talk about it. I'm not comfortable doing this. Even if the evidence says it's going to work, I'm not comfortable and we need to sit with this until... There's resolution. You know, it's not about giving your power away. What you're wanting is to feel you in the presence of someone who has the capacity to listen, demonstrate respect, and has taken time to learn about who you are and the territory you come from. You want something who's informed. Not just professionally with all the tools that they study, but personally has the capacity and you'll feel it. You'll feel when you're sitting with somebody whether they connect with you or not. And Veterans are highly intuitive. Yeah, they pick up a lack of fit very, very quickly. So I think it's about being discriminating it that way. And, and, and in terms of the professionals working with veterans is take time to get informed. Think about, go beyond your toolbox. You know, I was trained, like in this country, the big one is CBT. I was the opposite side. My, my clinical master's degree in South Africa was what we call the psychodynamic approach, which is always finding meaning and talking. And I, I spent years and I was going, I'm not getting, I'm not healing a part of these guys. 
So with my modality, I became really critical. I knew that as a psychologist, what I was using wasn't enough. I had to improve my toolbox. And as a veteran, that made sense to me because one, one or two modalities to fit all is ridiculous. So I spent years, you know, trying to work it out. Then I started studying a lot of neuroscience, body-based modalities. Then I started tuning into using the language of the, of the veteran. So over years, I developed a way of working. But I developed that because I was not complacent or egotistical enough to believe that my training was enough. And I think that's a real message to go out there. It's not enough. What we come out of with our training is, is, is one or two tools in our toolbox. You know, it's like you're going to carry an HE grenade and a pistol on your, on your operation. That's it. That's all you take. Well, we know that doesn't work. It would be intimidating coming out of, uh, especially, I mean, you have, you have experience that could carry you through the lived experience and the respect that you could break down walls pretty quick and be like, bro, yeah. I've, like I've been where you're at. Yeah. But I couldn't imagine a... Um, you know, a young dude or a young anyone just sitting there going like for his first time sitting down with, with a dude who sort of got amongst things and and would be like, fuck, I need a therapist to talk to this guy. You know, like, <laughs> there yeah. are people that can because they're very present as humans. But if you're playing a professional game, so if you're just stuck in your modality, um, doing the, the, psycho, the psychologist stance and not the human stance, I don't know. Let's see what that relationship looks like. But I know that there are non, the majority of non-veterans out there, there are numbers of them doing fabulous jobs of healing. You know, look, I've, I've, you don't have to be a veteran to help people heal whatever it is they need to heal or transition. But it's just got that other little component. You know, over the years I've had guys come in and go, yo, what do you know about war? And I go, well, is this picture enough? Fucking little bit. Now, now we brothers. Yes. Now we brothers. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't mean that you have to be there to do the work. It's about a level of presence and, and connection and respect and care, informed by appropriate tools and ability to constantly and adjust and adapt to learn more and be better at what you're doing. So no, they are. They're good people. I know they're the psychologists. They are really really good psychologists in, in open arms but again no we do a lot of we, we want to do a lot of work with open arms going forward and and uh yeah, i fucking i can't speak better for them mate yeah i can't speak more highly for the organization and you know when there isn't a fit it doesn't mean that the person is not good it just means there's not a fit it's like it's the same as you're not going to just as men or as women you know just to be a bloke doesn't mean there's always going to be a fit or to be a woman there's going to be a fit in a relationship you know, you can go out with something and go, there's no fit. It's an intuitive sense of connection. And so that lack of fit doesn't always have to be about the person not being good enough. It just can be there's not a fit, depending on what the person is presenting with. So, you know, I don't want to ever reduce things down to only veterans can heal veterans. I, I don't think that's true. I think that Open Arms has moved into having peer supervisors, peers, peer um, guys connecting and women connecting. I think is, is fabulous and innovative and I think is going to really enhance the healing journey that they already provide. Um, yeah, look, and it's, I've spent 18 years in this organization. You know, it's, I wouldn't have stayed 18 years if, uh, if I wasn't in an extraordinary organization. And like any, any organization, any family, there's creaks and groans. 
Yeah, there's characters and others and lots of great characters. That's life. But as an organization, they are constantly seeking to be better. Yeah, I think the, the, the some of the stuff that we're trying to teach uh, a lot of the, a lot of the blokes is expectation management through uh, time frames. Is you just have to like yeah. some stuff like at the end of the day, it's a national organization. Uh, they can't catch and be the, the you know same with DVA. Every other giant organization, they they are trying. They're human beings. Correct. Don't dehumanize the organization. They are human yeah. beings trying their best to to organize. But it takes time sometimes. You know. It does take time, but I know that there's a real willingness to self-reflect and see what works, see what doesn't work, and how to get bigger and better. And that's that's what everything is about. You don't, as a veteran, you don't become good at your job as a veteran or as a, as a soldier overnight. It's it's something that matures over time. But it's the same with organisations and individuals. You know, if you're just starting to work with veterans, it's a, it's a process. If you are there as a human being. The fundamental connection is what it's about. We, we, neuroscience shows that it's not so much the modality that's used, it's the capacity to connect and for the people sitting opposite you to feel a deep sense of trust, safety and confidence in you. Outside that, use whatever modalities you want. You know, so I think they're moving in really exciting areas and I'm, I'm very excited about the work they do and um, that I've been given the opportunity now to, you know, I'm fully online and uh, working with veterans around the country and having had the opportunity to sit with the most extraordinary human beings. Just extraordinary. Yeah, because we've had, we've had some dudes that have spoke to us and spoke to, uh, and said that, you you know, you have, you have sat down with them and had chats with them and, and they, they couldn't believe it, mate, some of the stuff you've been talking and, and doing and, and, and the effect you're having. So, Mate, it was it was been well. We've spoke about this for for a while now to get you involved and get yeah. you you know on the get on the podcast and and to be part of this. I don't think we've met to, to give away the tools and techniques you've spent a lifetime creating and uh, to do offer that up freely, mate. Was a phenomenal human being, mate. Yeah, look, and, and guys, I've always said if guys are anxious and ambivalent, if they just call me, I'll have a conversation and I'll talk to them about open arms. If they can't get there on their own first, just call me and I'll talk to them and get them there. You know, it's when you break through that, you know, and it's a very safe organization. Um, I prefer them to other organizations where you could be allocated to anyone working out there with veterans. So, you know, guys do have that option. They do. And, yeah, I mean, I've been really privileged, you know, and, and working with a lot of the special force population, I mean... I, I just love that. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting with the most intelligent, driven people, you know, who, who are wired to create change and to adjust and adapt. It's really exciting. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm as only, I always say in the things I write, that the people I've sat with from World War II to now, they've made me a better man, a better father, a better husband, and a better person. It's not just that I have stayed untouched. I become better by sitting with extraordinary human beings. They have taught me as much as I have taught them. You know, the, that's been the gift of, of these 18 years. It's not just the psychologist healing veterans. It's an interaction, an extraordinary interaction with the most incredible human beings. And it doesn't get any better. <laughs> mate, not with you, I don't think. Bloody, mate, it's been fantastic to have you on the show, mate. Uh, we're going to have to get you back. 
yeah, and and talk about if there's you know, current stuff coming up and get you involved, get you on as a regular, and maybe you can help us break down some pretty tricky issues if they come up. Uh, with, seriously, with pleasure. I mean, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to uh, to be a part of what you're doing. I, I think you're doing a great job. Uh, I love the things you're doing. And I love the modalities you talk about. Uh, it's just great. You, you're going right from the mind to the body and the interplay, and it's dynamic and innovative. And, you know, if you want to have a look at a really a very similar organization, it's, um, uh, it's Magnus Johnson um, Mission 22. Oh, yep. yep. Now, Magnus, I was having lots of contact with Magnus for quite a long time. We'd have regular chats. They, Magnus is an ex-Green Beret. And um, his organization now, their healing modalities, whether it's climbing mountains, equine therapy, um, body-based therapies, cold water therapies, um, all the different modalities, body-based and non-body-based. I mean, they, their vision has gone that way. It's not that way. So that's, for me, that's an organization that is very much leading the way. Um, John McCaskill, ex-Navy SEAL. John's an amazing bloke. I mean, I love him to bits. He's, um, he went, he's just transitioned out the SEAL team after a lifetime as a commander, studying um, mindfulness-based stuff um, through Veterans Path, and he's bringing mindfulness to the veteran community. Mindfulness, I must tell you, is an extraordinary thing. I always try to get veterans to try and begin five minutes twice a week and then slowly build up. You know, I've meditated for 47 years. And, you know, when I sit, I'll sit for two and a half hours. But that's a lifetime of discipline. Five minutes of mindfulness, ten minutes twice a day for six weeks, you change the neural wiring. You change things. It's a cap called an allele. And as we age, they get thinner and shorter. Six weeks of meditation, they grow. Chromosomal change. You know, from meditate yeah 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 and i mean if you know i'm even talking a lot now that i've just downloaded an ebook on wim hof's um, technique the book he explains things really well and saying to guys just read it if you want to become more informed about the benefits of simple breathing and a cold water shower simple stuff read it you know so it's it's about becoming innovative in therapies that work on the body and work on the mind and I love the kind of things you guys are doing. So, you know, just to say really thanks. It's a, it's a, it's a real privilege to be in your presence, guys. No, mate, privilege is ours. Um, uh, it's been great, mate. We'll, uh, we'll hang up now and yeah. 